She was a 19-year-old woman from Perth when Melanie Perkins decided to build Canva, the design platform that would later revolutionize the way 100 million users create and share visual content online. Hello, and welcome to our very first episode of Clever Women Co., a podcast for women to join the conversation about business, career, and entrepreneurship. I'm Em Kaplan, and for the very first time, I'm joined by my business bestie and co-host, Gal Cron. Hello. Episode one. Episode one. Finally, we've made it. We've made it. We have spent the last almost two years building Clever Women Co., a modern media business that champions women who are launching and growing their own businesses, women behind the scenes in various careers and industries and women in general making moves in their own way basically we want to put the billionaire founders of the world on the same platform as the girl next door business owner we want to include all career journeys from all corners because no two stories are ever alike but we won't stop there we're here to unpack and most importantly demystify companies careers and concepts in a fun i actually want to listen to that kind of way We're talking company successes and failures, industry deep dives and news updates, and of course, the brand's making such brilliant moves, you'll be sharing them with everyone you know. Now, you may have already guessed it, but for our first ever episode, we're going to dive deep into the career journey and influence of Melanie Perkins. From launching a site to simplify the process for creating school yearbooks, to co-founding Canva, a company which today sits in the same sentence as tech giants, Adobe and Microsoft. Fast forward from working out of her mother's living room, Melanie's company is now worth literally billions of dollars and growing. Sounds impressive, right? Well, not as much to Melanie and her co-founder Cliff Obrecht, whose real vision is to give it all away. So join us as we unpack her fascinating career journey and stay on as we discuss our favorite entrepreneurial takeaways from Melanie Perkins' story. Before we begin though, and in each week's episode, Gull and I will be bringing you our clever recommendation of the week. This could be anything from the book we can't put down to a product that is changing our lives and of course, the clever tidbits we can't possibly not share with you. <laughs> So episode one, episode one, recommendation, recommendation one, one. we'll no start pressure. with you, girl. <laughs> what is your clever recommendation for our very first episode of Clever Women Co? Sure. So I actually read this book called Packers Lunch a few years ago. It was mm-hmm. published in 2006 and it's basically about kind of the power players of Sydney in the 1990s. Okay. If you know Kerry Packer, if that name sounds familiar, he is the father of James Packer, who owns Crown Resorts. Yeah, they're a very wealthy family in yeah, Australia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you like succession, maybe this is a good one for you, like in a book form. Okay, I'm tuned in. <laughs> so essentially, it's kind of like the money-making tales of the 90s with like these power players and how it's saying like, Australians who were looking for fortune must be in want of a Swiss banker. So they had this offshore advisor, but when kind of their advisor was uncovered it uncovered a whole world of secret shared trading that was going back decades by a much larger group of players interesting can i read you a quote from it that i really liked absolutely please. or like a quote kind of from like the back of the book is it so like a blurb yeah, yeah so it says for this is the world of the networkers. The games they play, the restaurants they frequent, and the social circles they inhabit determine who is in and who is out, who ends up very rich and who is bankrupt. Everyone is a diner, but who gets to share the crumbs and who ends up on the menu? Ooh. Yeah, if you want kind of to learn about like power and corruption and, you Great. know, the power plays of the 90s, definitely. Um, yeah, and it's also Australian based, so local. Definitely well, give it a read. I'll be adding that one to my list. Thank, thank you. What about you, Em? Give us your first recommendation for episode one. Okay, so I went a little bit different. I went with an opinion article from the New York Times. Love it. So it was written by a man named David Brooks, and it was titled The Greatest Life Hacks in the World for Now. Ooh. So essentially, he's kind of sharing his own life pearls of wisdom that he's collected over the years. Mm. He's accumulated them, sorry, into like a really succinct list of life hacks. Like it's literally like a list. But just the way in which he shares it is so frank and literal. And like, if you know anything about me, I'm such a literal so person. Literal. So I really resonated with the way that he wrote, he wrote 
about them. So, mm. and they're also just like incredible hacks. Um, mm. You would love What's the article. What's your favorite? Any, any fave hacks? Because I love a good life hack. Well, one that really stuck with me was this idea of building identity capital in your 20s. Ooh. So what he says is do three fascinating things the job interviewers and dinner companions will want to ask you about for the rest of your life. Mm. How great of a rec- like how great of a hack because yeah. you think about obviously meeting people. What was it? Experience capital? Identity capital. Identity capital. Identity capital. Kind capital. of build your story, I guess. Exactly. Because like also if imagine if you have like three really pivotal moments for your, from your 20s, like that's such varied conversations that you could have from those three events. Mm, conversation starters and like something to stay on the conversation with. Seriously. So any I'd other hooks? Um, there was, I'm trying to think of another one. A funny one was, um, if you, if you thought, if you think you saw a mouse, you definitely did. And if you saw it, there are definitely, if there's one, there's definitely oh more. Oh my God. Let, let's, let's regroup for a second, but I have read it a number of times and I feel like it's an article that I really like keep going back to. So um, I'm definitely adding that to, you say the New York Times. Well, it's, it's in our shared account. Saved. Oh, amazing. It's already saved it's for already me then. I'm reading it after this. Anyways, it's now time to dive very deeply into this episode. And girl, how excited are we? Oh my God, I feel like we've been wanting to research Melanie Perkins for a long time Mm. and kind of her journey. She's such a local success story for Australia. Seriously. Like a great kind of young entrepreneurial story of someone who just didn't take no for an answer. And I know that's oversaid, but she didn't. Absolutely. And I think also if you think about today's day and age, where obviously visual content sorry, visual content is embedded into so many aspects of our lives. And it's really important for obviously brand success, success on like social media. Mm. It really makes you wonder what the online environment would look like if a company like Canva wasn't around. I also think like, how would we run our business? Like we've, we've used Canva from day one and it's been like business lifesaver. Where Canva stands. Yeah. I also love that we, yeah, we chose a woman, a woman who literally built a billion dollar empire around helping other businesses mm. you know or individuals kind of build their own brand yeah like people are brands these days canva Se- helps you build that Seriously. personal brand as well girl should we dive right in let's do it melanie's story actually begins way before she had the idea for canva she was born in perth western australia in may of 1987 and grew up in a family of educators Her mother is an Australian-born teacher and her father is an engineer of Filipino and Sri Lankan descent. At a young age, Em, she already started kind of displaying those signs of entrepreneurial spirit, which I feel is so common with people who will go on and build a business. Absolutely. It's something you see quite often. Yeah. She opened up her first business when she was just 14 years old. So she was selling handmade scarves in markets around Perth. What a little hustler. 14. I mean, what was I doing at Fontaine? Yeah. Um, At this time, she also had aspirations of actually becoming a professional skater. She would wake up at 4.30 a.m. for her training sessions. So, like, you can obviously see she she has the drive. She has the drive. And obviously, undoubtedly, those, I guess, small early on experiences really would have shaped her entrepreneurial mind. Like, if Mm. you think about a rigorous skating routine, like you'd have to build up quite a lot of determination. And I feel like it would also really help with confidence at a young mm. age. Like you're obviously having to build confidence to like know how to skate the moves. Yeah. Um, so she she was more sure of herself, or at least that's what we can assume. And don't you think there's a, like often parallels between sport and kind of business? Mm. Like the determination of waking up early, failing, falling and getting up again. Seriously. But also if you think of how many sports people have become gone on to become oh, business yeah. people like i think of like serena williams well, for we example. Them on this yeah we, we'll, we'll more on we'll that later <laughs> now while still in high school she did actually start designing websites for small businesses with which if you think about it is kind of extremely early days for doing something like that we're in the mid to late 2000s and she's already designing websites god yeah. she was really ahead of the grid hey yeah, like 2000 like five six like wow that's early days to like be designing for other businesses as well like websites were still new and early days for the internet as well such early days so girl she did actually later continue to hone her design skills while she was at university she enrolled at the university of western australia and majored in communications psychology and commerce you're totally right and while at uni in 2006 melanie also took on being a private tutor for other students learning graphic design So these are kind of the years where she starts to notice the difficulties students are having Mm. with even designing the most basic things. 
Um, a good example here would be Adobe Photoshop. So like it is hard to learn. There's buttons everywhere, you know. So confusing. So I remember confusing. Adobe from school. Like in, Photoshop in visual design. Me. It took me so long. Like did I, you do visual design? I did do visual design. I love that. It took me so long to learn. I feel like I still don't really understand it. <laughs> we needed her as tutor back then. Yeah. She actually often recalls it taking students an entire semester at uni to learn basic features like exporting a high quality PDF. She said that would take up to 22 clicks. Like in Canva, exporting a high quality PDF is like three, three clicks. clicks. Yeah. yeah. And then you can also save those settings for mm. the, like it's amazing. Um, while also tutoring these students in graphic design, she was taking a course in entrepreneurship as like part of her uni studies. So we can continue to assume here that she still had that drive to solve a problem or like create something. She was always looking for a solution. Yeah, the entrepreneurial drive, like when she was younger as well. Yeah. Um, and third, and I love this, it was during this time at uni that she also ended up meeting the person who wouldn't just become her co-founder at Canva later, but spoiler alert, also her husband. And that person is Cliff Obrecht. Yeah, so we can certainly say that she really did have that entrepreneurial drive that you just mentioned, girl, because the next year in 2007, Melanie decided she was going to start a design software business where no prior technical experience was actually required. So she drops out of uni at the age of fresh age of 19 to pursue her first business with Cliff, who was by now her boyfriend, and together they would launch a business called Fusion Books. So Fusion Books was a business selling yearbook design software to schools. Melanie said that it seemed like a really great market to Mm. start with because the problem in that area was just so pronounced with people obviously not having a platform to design things like this. And you'll also see this later, but she was always ahead. Like Mm. Melanie is thinking a million years ahead. Yeah, seriously. Anyway, so how the business actually worked was they created the software for people to use for free. Like people would design on the software for free. And the way they would make money is through selling the final print version of the yearbook to users designing them, that kind of being schools around Australia. And now there's already like kind of parallels between Fusion Books and Canva because with Fusion Books, users were able to kind of log in, collaborate on the visuals of the ebook pages, and it allowed them to use kind of simple drag and drop tools, which is very reminiscent of Canva. Mm. Basically, it just took the creation process online. So instead of people in the ebook team having to email pages back and forth, get confirmation on designs, they were now able to take that process and collaborate online. So much more efficient. Yeah. Melanie actually added here that no one really thinks about it, but when it comes to being that teacher or the person, I guess, organizing the yearbook, everything just kind of gets gets dropped on that person. And you're like supposed to suddenly design this whole thing by yourself. Mm. It really reminded me of formal like when there was kind of one person or like two people that had to pretty much organize all the logistics and just kind of gets dropped on them and it's like okay organize the venue the caterers the photographer the photo booth this this and that nightmare anyways (laughs) as we mentioned so melanie's mother was a teacher and she was also the one to coordinate the school yearbook so here melanie was obviously able to see kind of the pain points Mm. that even her mom experienced with designing a yearbook and how much time it took But since users of Fusion Books were still what we'd call, I guess, design rookies, Melanie and Cliff would give phone tutorials to every single customer. So they were spending hundreds of hours teaching them the software. At the same time, they would be cold calling schools to try and get them to become customers. A lot of time on the phone. what hustlers. Now, you might be thinking, okay, so they have this business, but where does the money to run it come from? In terms of funding, um, Fusion Books was what we call a bootstrapped business. Mm -hmm. So basically, if you think of the literal meaning of like strapping up your own boots, it's the same for business. Right. Um, With your own kind of person, like you start a company with your own personal savings or you kind of get borrowed or invested funds from like family or friends. So essentially, you're kind of getting really creative and like finding wherever you can to get money. But it's not like you're like going to an investor and like properly like going through the whole process. Right. Bootstrapping is, yeah, strapping up your own boots. (laughs) Melanie did actually borrow $50,000 from her mom to get the Fusion Books business off the idea pad. So her grandparents had unfortunately passed away and it was actually the inheritance that her mom got from them, which she then very very generously loaned to Melanie and Cliff Mm. so that they could start their business. Um, And Melanie mentioned at the time that it was a really big weight on their shoulders to ensure that the money could obviously be paid back to her mom. 
And boy, was this money able to be paid back, but we'll get to that. So yeah, they get this $50,000 and with this initial money, Melanie and Cliff end up with two huge printing presses in Melanie's mother's living room. Again, very reminiscent of like startup life, Mm. taking over your parents' house. Not only this, but kind of with their staff and pallets of paper and these massive ink cartridges, they also took over the garage, like goodbye space. Yeah, seriously. Now, during their approximately five years at Fusion Books and with up to 400 customers, they quickly realized that the software was still really complex for most people to be able to just use on their own. As we said earlier, they were spending hours with customers on Mm. the phone, like teaching them the software. And obviously this isn't a very sustainable business model. Anyway, at the same time, schools using Fusion Books kept asking them Like, can we use this software to design other things? Can we use it to create, you know, other documents, canteen menus, Mm. brochures? And Melanie thought, well, surely there's something around that caters to this audience that kind of helps people design all these different things. But she looked around and much to her surprise, there actually wasn't anything at the time. There wasn't anything. So this experience leads Melanie and Cliff to start thinking about how they could create an easier-to-use design platform that obviously didn't exist, and mm. they wanted to. They wanted it to be accessible to everyone. They kind of knew they had something here, and that this technology they developed had a much broader use case than just you know the school yearbook market. So in the summer of 2012, they decided to add some building blocks to the Fusion Books concept and take it to a much larger market. Canva, Melanie later explained, was going to be that design platform that would be accessible to everyone and boy, it was. Seriously, and I guess it kind of ended up being that all this time Fusion Books was like the prototype Mm. of what Canva would later go on to become. Definitely. Also, just a note here, girl. So I was really curious in my research about the meaning of the name Canva. And apparently it went through a number of iterations before they reached this as their final name of the business. So first off, they were actually going to name, um, keep the name Fusion Books. But Mm. Melanie thought the word Fusion was already used a lot back then. And the word Books was a little bit too limiting for the product. yeah. Yeah, for the product they were wanting to create. Yeah, she also said that Fusion books had too many syllables, Mm. you know, like she wanted to call it something that was like one word, something that's easy to spell and also pronounce like around the world. She's also like already thinking big and also something that's memorable. And as you said, and like is not too limiting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, funny you say that girl as it next would be called canvas chef. (laughs) So if you think of like a metaphorical pizza with the design elements as the toppings and the document type as the dough no (laughs) i i'm not the biggest fan melanie sorry (laughs) she also liked the name canvas just canvas on its own for years but she didn't want to make the same mistake with the word fusion and like give it a name that they couldn't really claim as their word so finally melanie lands on canva after one of canva's french engineers explained that canvas was actually pronounced canva in french yeah melanie also wanted to ensure that they would be able to get the com as in canva.com a domain which they actually later got for two and a half thousand dollars after cliff pitched the owners of canva.com to sell it to them i mean imagine being the person selling canva.com for two and a half thousand dollars seriously it reminds me of the dropbox story yeah where such a good um parallel yes seriously they gave so in in this story they gave them the option of like it was either two or three hundred thousand dollars or shares in dropbox when they were obviously trying to secure the domain and the person obviously took the money yeah those shares would be worth so much money today (laughs) but like at the time you if you're the person that owns dropbox.com, oh. you're like, oh, whatever. I, don't know I would have, I probably would have taken the money and yeah. invested it personally. For Dropbox, like, it's such a big part of their story, though, chasing that domain. Like, it took them a long time. Seriously. Listen story. to that episode of How I Built This. It's a really good one. Yeah. Anyway, so, Gal, we touched on Melanie's early years and obviously those humble beginnings that would later become the idea for Canva. But now they actually had to build this thing. They absolutely did. So, of course, a massive difference between Melanie's first idea, Fusion Books, and second idea, Canva, was this. for this idea, she had to completely up her funding. Mm. As we mentioned, Fusion Books was a bootstrapped venture, and now we all know what bootstrapping means. Um, It was built without what is called venture capital. So to build Canva, and now we're in 2011, Melanie needed to recruit some financial help. 
By the way, just to clarify, at this stage, Melanie is still thinking of launching it as Canvas Chef. The idea for Canva would actually come a little later. Yeah. For now, Canvas Chef needs some money. <laughs> Overall, this is where a person named Bill Tai comes into Melanie's story, Em. He certainly does, girl. Just to give you a little bit of background, Bill Tai is actually a global venture capitalist. Now, a venture capitalist or a VC primarily invests in startups and actually receives a portion of the business's profits in return for that investment. I guess how that process works is that is essentially the VC or VCs, as there can be multiple, give the company a valuation, invest funds in it, and as the company grows, so does the VC's equity as well alongside yeah. it. Bill has been funding startups as a venture capitalist for over 30 years and has had 23 of his startups become listed companies. Just couple, a little, little couple now. small ones, including Zoom and Wish.com. And if that wasn't enough, just to add to his resume, he's also a professor at Curtin University in Perth, where his focus is in innovation and economic development. But that's not the only factor that attracted Bill to Perth. So Bill's actually obsessed with a water sport called kite surfing. Mm. Kite surfing is a sport where you use wind power and a large power kite to kind of pull you across water. Now, the reason he likes Perth for this is because it's known as one of the most isolated cities in the world, which Mm. makes it apparently an amazing location for kite surfing. And yes, this does have relevance here to the story, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So in 2011, Bill attends an event, the Innovator of the Year conference in Perth. And guess who also attends it? Melanie. After the conference, she has a five-minute chat with Bill where she briefly pitches to him the idea for Candice Chef, which would later become Canva, of course. And he said, all right, if you come to Silicon Valley, I'd be happy to meet with you. Except when Melanie did follow up on this proposition to obviously meet with Bill. Bill was actually ignoring all of her emails. However, Melanie, being quite smart at the time, a little bit savvy, mm. every time she would send him an email, because obviously he's not going to meet with her, she would also actually report to him on the progress that her company was making. But I'd also just like to make a quick note that she actually kept on asking him to sign an NDA, so a <laughs> non-disclosure agreement, which apparently you just don't do when you're like speaking to an investor. Yeah, it's but like- Please don't take my idea for Canvas Chef. Yeah, seriously. But, like, but I mean, the idea is amazing. She's coming from Perth. She doesn't know. She's yeah, like, he could take, she doesn't even know what he, he could in, take it and she, run. She might not even know what that kind of investment entails. Yeah, and like that Kind of fair idea. enough. It was a great idea. Great idea. She's very savvy. So fast forward after these persistent emails, it was actually when she said she's coming to San Francisco to Silicon Valley that he immediately replies and he said, I'll be happy to meet with you. Silicon Valley, by the way, is the world's kind of hub for technology. It kind of hosts a lot of the biggest tech corporations, like their Mm. headquarters. But it's also a place for a lot of like kind of young, promising startups. So it's like a soup of like these high tech corporations and like also startups. Yeah, love that analogy. And in his reply to Melanie, Bill organized for her to meet up with both himself and Lars Rasmussen when she arrived, Lars being the co-founder of Google Maps. So here she is. All of a sudden, she has not one but two meetings lined up for when she would arrive in Silicon Valley. So she got her entire kind of pitch deck together and titled it The Future of Publishing. And she kind of consolidated all these ideas, consolidated, sorry, all these ideas that she kind of had floating around in her head all these years, like from the early days of Fusion Books. And she also used the big printing presses that we said that they had for Fusion Books to print her pitch deck. Genius. Which later she said no one prints a pitch deck. Like it's always kind of on the computer. Especially in Silicon Valley, like a tech hub. And there she is with her like hard copies. Yeah, she's there with hard copies. Anyways, so we're back in Silicon Valley and Melanie pays Bill Tai a visit at 165 University Avenue, a tiny office space located near Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Now, in our research, we discovered that 165 University Avenue is actually a known meetup location where startup ideas are pitched to big time Mm. investors. And it's also served as the incubator for companies you may have heard of, such as Google and PayPal. Girl, should we book our flights? <laughs> I've already booked it. Perfect. We're going. Amazing. <laughs> okay, so we're at 165 University Avenue for this meeting between Bill and Melanie. And when pitching to Bill, she was actually trying to kind of copy his body language because at uni, when she was studying communication psychology, she learned this concept called mirroring, where if you kind of mimic someone's 
kind of body language mm. that might be more inclined to like you. It's like very subtle, like interesting, you know. So she again always does her homework, you know. But despite doing her homework and really kind of practicing and honing her pitching skills. Melanie said that the meeting with Bill was quite awkward. She, like, he was on his phone a lot, like, while she's trying to pitch him and also, like, kind of eat her lunch at the same time and telling him about the future of publishing. Right. It's a, lot to, it's a lot to handle at once. Yeah, and also on his phone the whole time. Like, I would be, like, my heart would be beating mm. so fast. Like, I'd be like, is he interested? Like, mm. you know, like, and Stressing. I guess, like, it shows you that some people, sh- like, communicate so differently to others and it's, you can really decide in, like, in my head, in that moment, I would have decided, like, he hates it. Yeah, like, great, great point though. Yeah. Anyway, though, she ends up going home thinking, all right, like, well, that went to shit. Um, but later she learns that he was actually on his phone intro, like introducing her to people. So like he's on his phone kind of telling people about her idea and how amazing she is. And she thinks like he's not interested. No way. You know, like this whole time he's just impressed. Yeah, right. And the following day he said he'd be happy to invest if she can find the right tech team. I mean, the following what, a, day. what a turn of events. Mm. At the time they were using external developers, so like an agency. Um, and as we did say, Bill introduced Melanie to Lars, being the co-founder of Google Maps quite early on. So Lars and Melanie met mm. and they hit it off. They both had a very similar kind of philosophy about the future of publishing and the future of communication and Lars is on board. Also, remember how young she is right now, right? Like she's, I think, still under Speaking 25. Speaking to the co-founder of Google Maps. Yeah, she just had to probably and kind one of, of the like, best VCs in the world. Like not think about... Who she was speaking to and just, she obviously was so set and determined because she had so much, yeah, she had so much faith in her idea. Yeah. Uh, However, it did actually take about a year for them to find a tech team because apparently Lars just kept rejecting every single person that Melanie would bring him. He definitely did. Of this time, she said, and I quote, I would go to every conference, every event, every talk I could get to. I was cold calling people, emailing people on LinkedIn. I would take people's resumes back to Lars and get his advice. And he would almost always say, they're not good enough. And then I would bring him a person, a physical person, (laughs) and he would interview them and he would come back to me and say, well, we can't take that person either. They're not up to the technical bar. And she went on and I quote, this continued for ages. I got frustrated and I thought, surely it's better to just start saying yes so we can get going with this mission rather than just saying no to everyone. But eventually when we got the right person, it made all the difference. Once we'd met that bar that Lars had set, it really helped set the right standard. Mm, Lars eventually introduced her to people he had worked with previously, Mm. including the person who would actually later become the third and technical co-founder of Canva, as well as as well as head of product, and that is Cameron Adams. Melanie actually managed to convince him to leave his existing job and join Canva. Wow. But getting a tech team meant making it halfway to actually developing Canva, because as we said, of course, the co-founders, now three of them, also needed that funding. So enter a simultaneous element to the story that we briefly made mention to earlier, kite surfing. Now, while kite surfing seems really random, like an odd element of Canva's startup story, it's actually a key to how she met some of the people who would later invest in Canva. I guess in a way it was like her ticket to Silicon Valley. We previously mentioned, you mentioned um, venture capitalist Bill Tai and his obsession with kite surfing manifested itself in the form of Mai Tai. So he created this retreat and invite, like he would invite like entrepreneurs and innovators and athletes. And it was kind of like a prominent place for tech executives to kind of eye new startups, like looking to invest in, you know, a like young promising startup. So the year is 2012. And Melanie scores an invitation to one of Bill Tai's Mai Tai retreats in Maui, which is like huge because like no matter what happens, she gets to introduce herself to everyone. Yeah, seriously. And look, you're probably wondering, just as we were, why he landed on kite surfing. Bill Tai explained, and I quote, there are a lot of parallels to participating in either kite surfing or a startup company. The kind of person who's drawn to either is somebody who is unafraid of operating in a very dynamic, rapidly changing environment. It's having to learn things that are unwritten. You can't read a book and start a company. You can't read a book and be a kite surfer. You just have to try. So back to kite surfing, apparently it's a sport where Obviously, because it's like so challenging, uh, no matter who you are or how good of an athlete you are, you'll just fail when you start. Like you'll fail a lot. (laughs) And this too is obviously common in the startup world. So lots of parallels between kite surfing and startups. 
Also, due to the fact that very few people can kite surf for more than 10 minutes, which shows you how hard it is, mm. there is actually a lot of downtime to engage in conversation. This explains why Mai Tai, this retreat, became kind of the golf course, per se, of Silicon Valley, where there's a lot of downtime and deals can get kind of done in the downtime. Mm. And I also love that analogy. I lo- yeah, I love that analogy. So as we said, Bill Tai invites Melanie and Cliff to this exclusive kite surfing event. But in order to attend, Melanie needed to first learn how to kite surf. So while she's kind of updating Bill on how the business development is going, she's also updating him on how her kite surfing is going. Always kind of onto it with updating. Seriously. And she actually later said that she found kite surfing quite scary, which obviously showed her determination to score an invite to one of these kite surfing events. Mm. But anyway, back to the retreat in Maui. So just to clarify, they weren't actually invited to the retreat to pitch the Canvas Chef idea. They were invited, obviously, to meet people and network. Mm. However, when they were there, Melanie and her team actually asked if they could pitch the Canvas Chef idea to the attendees. They were fighting for a speaking spot. So Mm. the evening before, they were getting people to kind of rally on their behalf half to try and get them a speaking spot for the morning so they're up all night they're preparing their pitch and then the next morning they won the opportunity and actually pitched in front of a room full of people that they're just completely intimidated by reflecting back melanie said and i quote we pitched our concept in front of the most influential people we'd ever met in our lives after that event, we ended up with a lot of really strong interests from people such as Dave Bagshaw, the ex-CEO of Shutterfly, Ken Goldman, the CFO of Yahoo, and Rick Baker, who is one of the founding partners of Blackbird Ventures. Although they didn't leave the retreat landing any capital, as we mentioned before, she came with the idea of Canvas Chef. Some of the kind of prospective investors didn't really resonate with mm. that name. They didn't like the kind of metaphor of they the pizza. They didn't get the idea. Yeah, they didn't get it. It, it didn't work so well in their favor also fun fact in maui after someone suggested they needed a single leader that is when melanie became the sole ceo so i guess there was something good that came out yeah of that always retreat. something good comes out of it but as we said obviously it wasn't so rosy it wasn't like after that retreat like boom they had enough funding or they had investors on board to be able to progress their idea they pitched for a while after that kite surfing conference still getting a lot of rejection in fact they actually pitched gull to over 100 investors who said no. And it took them over three years to land their very first investment. Not rosy at all. Oh my God, I mean the... The determination to yeah. continue after that much rejection Being would be really no. difficult. Yeah, really difficult. You have to really keep your head high. And it looks so easy to be like, oh, don't give up. But like, it's so easy to, and you're getting that much rejection. You would start thinking, fuck my dear so bad but again like it just shows her passion and her belief in what she was doing certainly now i guess we wanted to just touch on i guess the reasons they weren't getting that capital that they really needed so girl talk us through it yeah so one thing was canva's mission was initially met with extreme pushback by venture capitalists that she pitched to in hindsight she actually realized that the early pitch decks kind of failed to explain the answer to the most important question and Mm. that is the problem canva was built to solve so she tries she tried to explain kind of the how of the product before explaining why it mattered Mm. she neglected to share kind of her personal story of the pain points she saw her students were experiencing like the students she was tutoring in design and that would have added you know, like the personal element of like, this is a real problem for everyday people. Yeah. And proving, I guess, the point that she had when she was tutoring students and the difficulty difficulties that they had rather mm. than kind of reinforcing yeah. how the product works. Yeah. Like how comes later? First, yeah. tell me why you're building it. Absolutely. So another reason they weren't getting capital was because of a question Melanie recalls getting a lot from investors, which was like surely another massive company like Adobe mm. or Microsoft will just throw $500 million at a project and build something very similar to her idea and just wipe her out. Mm. I mean, fair, like valid question. Yeah. But clearly those investors couldn't see the vision in the way that Melanie did. Now, there's also a third reason that kind of made it hard to get that funding. And that is that dozens of firms passed on kind of investing in an Australian kind of little known startup far away. Mm. Like they were looking at Perth as kind of like this like startup dead zone. Like no one really thought, oh, this is going to be huge, you know? Yeah. They weren't really comfortable doing a deal in Australia. 
they just didn't think it was going to make sense. Yeah, so obviously they took a couple of actions from this. They're like, okay, obviously something's not working. Mm. We're pitched to 100 people. They've all said no. On this, they said that there was a point in their fundraising journey that they literally got rejected by everyone in Silicon Valley. They said their spreadsheets of leads started turning red. It was rejection after rejection with no one wanting to invest. Something's not working, so how do they change it, girl? Okay, so the first thing they did was they started asking for advice instead of funding. Mm. They changed their approach to pitching pretty much. They kind of shifted So at the end of a pitch, they kind of got tired of asking, so are you going to invest? Like, what do you think? And being told no over and over again. Mm. So what they did is they started asking for advice. For example, I'd love some advice on my pitch deck. This was a much better reason to keep a relationship with investors going. You kind of go back to them and you say, hey, that thing that we were talking about or like that thing you told me to do, that's now done. You know, she's, she's keeping them in the loop. And that's how they ended up with so many investors coming along for the ride, it opened up doors that would otherwise actually close at the end of that pitch. She was really good at that, like kind of keeping that relationship going with a lot of her investors. Yeah, get on your emails, people. As we said, she's asking for, at the end of a pitch deck, she's asking for something different, but during the pitch deck, she actually pivoted the way that she would present it. Mm -hmm. So on this, she said, and I quote, it's important to tell the story because if your audience doesn't understand the problem, they won't understand the solution. So when she began to actually pitch her story, so as we said before, instead of saying the how, she'd say the why, a lot of investors were reminded of the frustrations they felt when actually using software that required months or even years for them to mm. master. And only then was a stage kind of set for Melanie and Cliff to demonstrate the solution, which allowed users to start creating basic designs in just a couple of minutes. It was this kind of shift in direction in her pitch deck that landed her the funding that she so desperately needed to start building Canva. Finally, after lots of pitching, um, both to tech people and to investors, and after, of course, many rejections, a team finally comes together and some capital in the form of funding comes together and was finally raised. Yeah, so after many no's, her company raised $3 million in seed funding from Australian and US investors. And just quickly, seed funding is typically funding to finance a startup's initial costs, so things like product development, market research, and business formation expenses. Some of these investors did include Matrix Partners, Interwest Partners, and a company called 500 Startups. And we just quickly want to veer off the timeline and make something clear here. So at the time, Canva also applied for something called the Australian Government Startup Grant, meaning if the startup raised 1.5 million, which Canva did go on to raise, the government would match that. Hence the $3 million that is in all the headlines that Canva Mm. was able to raise. Yeah, I also read later that um, that was kind of like a push by the Australian government to keep Canva on Australian shores. Like they wanted it to stay in Australia because like, as you can see later, that's such a success successful startup and a benefit to our economy yeah and it's also going to make like people be more confident investing in Australian startups very true um so with this three million dollars in seed funding Canva then said it was going to focus on the product getting it to launch at first in the US and Australia and then they would roll it out worldwide so enter the year of development So we're now in 2012 and Melanie and her team get to work, rebuilding the technology from Fusion Books for their new project, which would come to be known as Canva. So similarly to Fusion Books, Melanie and Cliff began Canva in her mum's living room. We're back there. (laughs) Nostalgic. She later told CNBC in 2020, and I quote, my mum's living room became my office and my boyfriend became my business partner. Reflecting back on plotting the idea for Canva, Melanie actually later said in a letter to the Canva community, and I quote, in order to empower the world to design, we needed to simplify the whole design process and integrate everything into one place. This included bringing stock photos, design templates, fonts, editing, publishing, content management, (laughs) printing, all into one ecosystem, all kind of into one place. 
all into Canva. <laughs> On a podcast years later, Melanie was asked, so were you looking to be a disruptor to the desktop publishing industry at the age of 19? Melanie answered, and I quote, at 19, I thought that in the future, it would be inevitable that things were going to move from being desktop based to being online. I also thought it was really apparent that it shouldn't be so complicated. Students would take an entire semester to learn where the buttons were. They'd have to read long instruction manuals and they were really, really complicated. She continued, a few things seemed apparent, that things were going to be online, that they were going to be simpler and that they were going to be collaborative. Mm. Okay, so uh, Canva is gearing up for launch. Um, We're still in 2012, by the way, Um, but when talking about Canva publicly, Melanie was actually pretty reluctant to share the specifics, which reminds you again of like when she said sign an NDA to the first investor. She was really discreet about her second startup, like what it will involve. Mm. She kept the information really short, but said that the core concept, which was going to be an online design platform, would appeal to designers and non-designers alike. That's very true, girl. Um, but startup founders have repeatedly been told not to hide their ideas away. Obviously, you'll risk kind of not giving venture capitalists or VCs enough information for them to want to make an investment. Melanie, however, stuck to the stealth mode approach until she decided that her idea was finally ready. She definitely did. So she's gearing up for launch, and then it's time, M, to take Canva to market. It's 2012 and Melanie and Cliff finally launched the beta version of Canva. So at this point, they were based out of Sydney and had a team of 12 full-timers, including themselves. And just to quickly explain, beta is, I love this explanation. So beta is actually the second letter of the Greek alphabet, suggesting that is it is the second development phase in testing. So a beta version is essentially the crash test for a startup's offering or product before it's finally released to the public. So... How this works is generally it's just released to kind of a select group of people, like industry professionals usually, to test and provide feedback on it. So Canva launches their beta version, which was made available only to a select number of professionals. And with this approach, they were actually able to gather feedback and then apply, obviously, collected insights to the product before they were able to launch it publicly. The beta version actually quickly gained popularity for its intuitive interface and extensive library of design templates. But Belly wasn't going to stop at product testing alone. At the time, she was really like kind of trying to refine Canva's brand mission and messaging before it was ready to be shared with the world. To Melanie, the goal was clear, to enable the whole world to design. She said, and I quote, our goal was to take the entire design ecosystem, integrate it into one page, and then make it accessible to the whole world. As for the vision, she wanted to build the world's most valuable company. And girl, with such a rock solid brand vision, clear messaging, and such a great product, Canva was finally ready for launch. And now all this excitement actually got a trickle of signups that grew to 50,000 users in the first month of Canva. But how did Melanie do that? Well, other than a great product and great brand messaging, there were a few keys to success or early success in Melanie's story that we kind of wanted to touch on. That's absolutely right. And I guess one of them was that Melanie really tapped into an emerging trend quite early on. So she was able to see that both the internet and online design were starting to make their way into people's kind of everyday workflows more and more. And she was able to spot a problem that people had in that, a problem that her own students had, which was not knowing how to design, but obviously needing to design and then providing them with the perfect solution. Knowing this meant that she launched Canva kind of before the industry and market had really taken off. Mm, Yeah, the rise of like Instagram and Twitter for business, like that was changing how businesses would reach customers from schools to small businesses, restaurants and self-published authors. Like everyone suddenly cared about their online presence Mm. and people started to become brands themselves, as we mentioned very early on in the episode. And Canva, I guess, was an affordable way to look good. Just to sort of paint this picture for you, in 2012, there were over 70 million business pages on Facebook, 
or businesses on Facebook, 25 million business profiles on Instagram and 18 million company pages on LinkedIn. So there's definitely a surge in like people being online if they have a business and they all needed to use images and graphics to communicate with their followers. Mm, I wonder how much that has grown to to, to, like in today. I don't even want to check. I'm actually scared. Seriously. Uh, Canva was actually also so loved by people really early on because it actually empowered them to design. It made designing fun. So true. Yeah. I love designing on Canva. Like you actually want to jump on and design. Seriously. And like you want to kind of improve your skills even Mm -hmm. in the design software. Yeah. Another kind of key to early success here is they really provided a lot of value both in the free and the paid version so you weren't kind of like Mm. stuck behind you know this paywall to get into all the like good features you didn't have to kind of commit and pay access to like and pay to even access the software something that you typically kind of need to do in order to again access like adobe photoshop and illustrator you'd have to kind of put your wallet first yeah and and i feel like so many systems require you to exactly as you said like give a credit card before you can use any of the good yeah um, or even a trial like just to use the trial you need to give your card details canva doesn't do that seriously it really gives you a free version no strings attached Mm. a tip from melanie herself on this and i quote is offer a free tier that delivers a lot of value as it will naturally help your product spread much more rapidly because of course if people can use the free tier and like really see how good your software is Mm. they're going to probably pay for the paid version yeah this really explained how canva i guess got to fifty thousand users so quickly canva continued to grow rapidly raising another six million dollars in 2014 and 15 million dollars in 2015 in 2018 melanie and her team finalized a 40 million dollar funding round now valuing the company at a billion dollars m This made Canva the first Australian startup since Atlassian to become what is called a unicorn, which is a company with a valuation of a billion dollars. Oh my God. I just want to quickly jump in here because we did obviously jump through quite a few years then, but obviously like even doubling from what was it? 2014 to 2015, over doubling their funding. like And their valuation by by 2018, like a billion with a B. Mm considering they launched in 2013 like you can't even wrap your head around it seriously but melanie didn't actually look at this valuation saying like you know we've made it to her it was still the very beginning and on september 15th of 2021 melanie made it one step closer to making canva the most valuable (laughs) tech company in the world as canva m announced a valuation of 40 billion with a b oh my god dollars so wild 2018 1 billion 2021 40 billion like that gross it's insane it's insane by the way we are talking in usd i just wanted to put that out there This time, the valuation was based on a $200 million funding round and really solidified Canva as one of the fastest growing software companies to date. It showed that once again, Melanie's intuition knew exactly what Canva would go on to become Mm. and prove that the $1 billion valuation in 2018 was really just the beginning. Simultaneously though, girl, Melanie and Cliff announced their plans to give most of their shareholding away. They signed up to something called the Giving Pledge, which is a campaign founded by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. It's a commitment to give away most of their fortune during their lifetimes. Just on this, we actually did a little bit of research into the Giving Pledge. Mm. And interestingly enough, girl, there are only 236 signatories to it. Considering there are approximately 2,640 billionaires in the world, Mm. I mean, that's about, what, like 10%. Seems like a pretty low number. It does. It really seems like I'm like, who needs all that money in a way? Seriously. Anyway, Melanie and Cliff definitely could not tell you what the anyone to that question. needs <laughs> that much money for because that despite kind of, you know, the lavish holidays that they deserve mm. and, you know, the trappings of achieving billionaire status, Cliff has committed, well, Cliff and Melanie committed to never hoarding their wealth. So just when you thought they were done with achieving such a high level of success in October of 2020, 22 canva revealed its products are now used by more than 100 million people every single month and have recently pulled in 1.4 billion dollars in annual revenue 
Melanie's journey is today one of the most remarkable stories in Technology M. Melanie is one of the youngest female CEOs of a tech startup valued over a billion dollars. And as of May 2021, she is one of Australia's richest women. I don't think she even wants to be in that list. Like yeah. she said in the past, like they don't even consider themselves, you know, billionaires. Well, and... she's so focused on building the product. And as yeah. she said, like making design accessible to everyone. P.S. In 2020, Cliff actually got on one knee and proposed to his tech CEO partner in Turkey's backpacker friendly Cappadocia region. The engagement ring, you guys are going to love this, according to some reports, was just $30. No way. That's the irony. <laughs> the irony. In January 2021, Melanie and Cliff got married on Rottnest Island in Western Australia, so back in their hometown. They live together in Surrey Hills in Sydney, which is actually where their main office is based here in Australia. Should we go take a visit? <laughs> yeah, I think they're actually opening up a, an office oh, yes, in Melbourne. They, they actually just announced that. I'm yeah. so excited. Now, whilst not every startup or mid-sized company can hope to replicate Canva's immense success or utilize, I guess, the same growth methods, they can come away with some great tips. There are obviously so many lessons that we can learn from Melanie Perkins, but here are a few of mine and Gull's favorites. Mm. Gull, let's start with you. Well, I love that she really tapped into the right segment. So she started niche and then went wide. Like by starting niche, I mean like, really listening to the yearbook market and mm. like with fusion books which is of course more of a niche product than canva she kind of started building her skills and then when she was ready to kind of take it bigger is when she did that like after five years of fusion books she probably had more kind of experience up mm. her sleeve to take it to such a big company whereas i wonder what it would be if she just started with canva like what would the software look like yeah if it was there's no if there wasn't any fusion books Absolutely. before just on that as well like something that really resonates for me is her constant ability to adapt and i think mm. that's something that's really important in terms of being an entrepreneur and like having an entrepreneurial mindset is like you need to constantly be picking up what people are giving you and like running with it so like mm. in her case she obviously had to change the name she had to kind of um make a shift in her pitch deck and like all those little experiences from obviously starting fusion books having seeing that pain point which was the initial kind of i guess point where she started and like the initial idea of like okay we need to make design mm. accessible to everyone with all those like foundational elements she constantly pivoted 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 p.s remember how we told you that melanie borrowed fifty thousand dollars from her mum? well she can actually remember the day she paid that money back and she said it was actually a special day and mm. quite a funny story because when she asked her mum how she would like to be paid back Melanie said her mom was very happy to make the $50,000 cash back rather than through equity in the company. I love kind of like the humbleness of that, mm. you know? I wonder if she kind of knew how big her daughter's company was going to be. But also love that like she's like the quiet hero in this, mm. like letting them use her house, helping her, garage, her bootstrap. Yeah, like giving the initial funding, like she got that as an inheritance and gave it to Melanie. Yeah. That's the hero in the story. It's so and, special. Like, taking over the garage and the living room, that's the people that really help you get there, you Absolutely. know? Absolutely. And girl, that is a wrap on our very first episode of Clever Women Co. I mean, what a story to start with. Seriously, what a story. No pressure for the next episodes. <laughs> now, you can find us on all your favorite social media platforms as Clever Women Co. So feel free to kind of slide into our DMs and let us know what you thought. Provide of... us with that feedback, yes, please. Yes, please do. And of course, feel free to listen to us wherever you listen to your podcast. I know we have one episode so far, but we will be on all your favorite podcast platforms. Plenty more episodes to come. And if you enjoyed this content and would like to hear more, please obviously subscribe to our show and leave us a review. It would really help us out a lot. Certainly. And also send it to your friends. Just your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your parents, your brother's friends, sisters, <laughs> cats and dogs included. Your cousin's cousin's friend. <laughs> And thank you so much for listening. And we can't wait to catch you in our next episode. Ah, see you then. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to a Clever Media production. Clever Media acknowledges the traditional owners of the land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. We pay our deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Like this episode? 
Let us know about it. And don't worry, we have plenty more. So hit that subscribe button and listen wherever you get your podcasts. But want to take it that little bit further from your ears to your eyes? Then go find us as Clever Women Co. on TikTok and Instagram for that extra clever content we know you'll love. Catch you next time.